Welcome to Seniority Authority, the podcast where I track down experts to answer your questions on aging. I'm your host, Kathleen Toomey. Let's get smarter about growing older. Are you interested in improving your memory and your cognitive function? If you're over 50, the answer is probably yes. We know that statistically speaking, people fear dementia more than death. So what if I told you there's a way to decrease your chance of getting dementia and improve your cognitive function just by making some lifestyle changes? It's worth a listen, right? My guest, Dr. Vanetta Dotson, is a gerontologist and neuropsychologist at Georgia State University. She's director of Aging Well for Everyone Neuropsychology Laboratory, researching cognitive and brain changes in late-life depression and exercise intervention. Dr. Dotson also consults for NASA on how to protect the brains of astronauts who are going into the International Space Station. Finally, if that's not enough, she also has a startup company called CerebroFit, providing cognitive and exercise consulting to improve brain health and wellness. Thanks to our show sponsor, The Riverwoods Group, Northern New England's largest family of not-for-profit continuing care retirement communities, where independent, active adults find purpose, community, and peace of mind. Visit us at riverwoodsgroup.org. Now, let's hear from today's guest. I am so thrilled that you are here talking to Seniority Authority today, Dr. Dodson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is wonderful to have you. Your book is fantastic, and I didn't even include that in the introduction. You've done so much, and you clearly know your stuff when it comes to brain health and wellness. I know that one of the things my listeners are interested in is at what age should people start being concerned about brain health? I love that question. It's one of my favorite things to answer because the answer is any age. Brain health is a lifelong process. In order to age well, we have to start early. No matter what age you are, that's the time that you should start doing things that are healthy for your brain because what happens early matters. You can set the foundation for a healthier brain throughout your life and for a better aging process. If you start thinking about brain health early, the same way that you would about any other type of health. You know, no one says, I'm not going to worry about my heart health until I'm older. They actually know that throughout their life, they should be doing things like exercising and eating well for a healthy heart. The same thing is true for the brain. It's a lifelong process, but at the same time, it's never too late to start. So if you're in your 50s or 60s and haven't been thinking about it, that's okay. Start now. But if you're in your 20s and you're thinking about it, start now also. I like that. I like that. One of the things we first started talking about this discussion is talking about the many myths that come with brain health. And I love that you are interested in debunking the myths as uh, as I am, because I think there's so many assumptions out there that just are not true. Tell me about what myths you love debunking about brain health. Yeah, there are a few of them, but I'll I'll mention two that are my favorites to debunk. One is that we can't do anything about our brain health after we get older. 
So people often will think by the time you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, it's too late that your brain's not capable of learning new things or of changing or of growing in any kind of way. And that's absolutely not true. What I find fascinating about brain health is that we can do things to improve our brain health again at any age. And that even as we're older, our body and our brain has the ability to adapt, to learn, to generate new neurons or nerve cells in the brain, to improve connections between parts of the brain. We carry that ability into late life. It is true that the ability to sort of change does maybe slow down. So maybe it's not as efficient. You still have it. So things like exercise that I'm sure I'll talk about more later are really great for neurogenesis, generating new nerve cells, increasing connections between parts of the brain, even after you're older. And I find that very exciting. So I love debunking that myth because it's something to give people hope that don't think that, oh, you know, if I had a head injury and I'm older, I can't come back from it. Or if I had a stroke, I can't learn again or improve my brain health. You can, you can do that any age. So that's one of my favorites. I love that. I think that's so, so hopeful for our listeners is that it doesn't matter how old you are, you can strengthen your brain at any age. At any age. And again, that's one of my favorite things to tell people. I spend a lot of my time as a neuropsychologist doing assessments and sometimes having to give not so good news to people if they have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or some other type of disorder. I love it when I get to give the good news that, hey, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your health status, there are some things that can help even if not cure, and there's things that can help to prevent these disorders. So I'm very much focused on trying to give that hopeful message so that we don't see aging so negatively. That's my favorite myth to debunk. The other one that I like debunking is the idea that we can take a magic supplement that's going to make our brains healthier, stronger, faster, all the things that we see claimed sometimes. And that (laughs) is not true. I am sorry to say that for people who spent a lot of money on buying supplements, but In reality, there is very little research to support the idea that these so-called brain health supplements make any meaningful changes in a person's functioning. So on the one hand, I know that by saying that, I'm taking away possibly some hope that someone has by thinking, oh, I can take these supplements and get better. But replace that focus on and instead think about the healthy lifestyle behaviors that can promote a healthy brain. The research does support that. So it's better to put the effort towards living in a healthy way rather than taking a supplement that's going to increase your memory in two weeks or whatever the things that are being claimed by some of these companies. Well, that's what I love about your work, your research, and your book, which is called Keep Your Wits About You, because you delve into the science. You're in the midst of the science of how to maintain brain health as you age. And as opposed to buying a supplement that you put in your body, what you're saying to make lasting changes for brain health, make lifestyle changes, which is accessible to everyone. Can you share with us a couple of those lifestyle changes that we can start doing today, tomorrow? Absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that they're accessible to everyone because they are. And I think that's really important Of course, some of these specifics of what people have access to can vary depending on where they live, their financial resources, et cetera. But there are ways to have these healthy behaviors that can be free or really cheap and that are not putting your money towards things like supplements. 
My favorite lifestyle behavior to talk about is exercise or physical activity, more broadly speaking. So physical activity is actually any movement that's going to require energy and muscle use. And so that can be everyday activities, housework, gardening, lawn work, that sort of thing. But then you also have exercise, which is going to be more structured. So intentionally walking for exercise or jogging, swimming, playing a sport, all the other things that we might do for exercise. Both physical activity overall and exercise have been shown to have a tremendous impact on the brain. And this is where I get the most excitement. A lot of my research focuses on exercise because even through my training and early years of my career, I was not aware of the literature about exercise in the brain. But when I found out, it just like something, a light bulb kind of clicked and I said, oh my goodness, this is all making sense now. You know, I had spent many years doing research on depression in the brain and then also understanding that exercise can help with depression. I didn't realize that they were linked. I thought, oh, exercise is good because people are moving more and they get what we call behavioral activation, which is true. But I didn't realize that exercise is actually changing the brain in a way that promotes better mood, lower risk for depression, less anxiety, less cognitive impairment. It's like the cure-all, I say, kind of jokingly, but not jokingly, because so many things are improved by exercise. So if you think about it, if the brain is the root of all behavior and emotions and cognition, when you make the brain healthier, all these things get better. Exercise does that. And that, to me, was just fascinating, still is fascinating, and motivates so much of what I do now. That's incredible. It really, really is. And just to mention a couple of things without giving the whole book away, um, (laughs) some of the things that exercise does for the brain, it really helps to increase the size of different parts of the brain. And I want to point out that most of this research historically has been done actually in older adults. Again, debunking that myth that our brain can't change as we get older. People who are more physically fit in late life or people who are older who start an exercise regimen are more likely to have larger volumes or size of different parts of the brain that are important for cognitive functioning and mood. We also see that the brain communicates more efficiently within itself. So different parts of the brain need to be connected and operate in concert to be able to carry about our activities. That is a more efficient and useful process, the more fit we are. And then really important is that vascular health, heart health and brain health are tied together. So when your heart is healthy, your brain is healthier. We need our brain to have a healthy blood flow, and we want to make sure we don't have any kind of blockages in our arteries because that can cause strokes. Exercise helps to reduce some of those vascular changes that can happen to the brain as we get older. So it's magnificent. Exercise is wonderful. You get immediate benefits to your mood and to your attention and focus. You get long-term benefits in terms of better cognitive functioning for longer and a reduced risk for dementia. So I could say... I could be here for the whole hour talking about exercise because it is my favorite. So if there's one <laughs> thing that you do for your brain, please exercise, please move. And I think that's important. People think, oh, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to lift weights. I don't want to be around all these you know, people who are the gym rats. You don't have to do that. You can go for a walk after dinner. It can be um, low intensity exercises at home using your own body weight. You can go dancing, which is going to be adding a social aspect to the exercise part. There's just so many ways of moving that are fun, that don't feel like a chore or like exercise, but you are moving and that movement is good. So that's number one. Okay. Number two, I I just um, kind of alluded to is the social aspect. And I want to bring this up because it's something that I think all of us feel a lot from what happened during the pandemic 
and how we were all so socially isolated and how it affected all of us, I think, to some degree, some greater than others, to have that inability to just see people and to feel comfortable hugging people and to um, not feel comfortable being in large groups. And I think that highlighted what we've known for years, which is that we need social connections. We are social creatures by nature. And the things that kind of by nature we need tend to be good for our health. You know, we need certain nutrients for survival. We need it for our health. We need certain social connections for survival and for our health. It's just part of what's ingrained in us. So the research shows that people who have stronger social networks doesn't necessarily have to be a big network, it has to be strong. You might want a small circle or you might want a big circle. But if you have a circle of friends and family, people who you care about, who um, you feel connected to, that's what's important, whatever the size is. People who are socially disconnected and who feel lonely, who have a mismatch between the social connections they want and the social connections they have, tend to have more problems with depression, with cognitive impairment, a higher risk for dementia. So all of the negatives that can come with social isolation and loneliness can be counteracted by building social networks. And I like talking about that one because that sounds more fun. Some people say, yeah, exercise sounds like a chore. I don't want to do that. But most people, even people who are introverted, to some degree want to have a connection. So saying, hey, go and do what you would naturally want to do. It's good for your brain is a nice message to tell people. I love that. And it's so different from most people's assumption that if I want to work on my brain, I need to do Sudoku or a crossword puzzle. In fact, that's not it. It's the social connection. And as I understand from our conversation, the social connection wires different parts of our brain than the typical brain games. Is that correct? Yes. So the different brain healthy lifestyle behaviors really do have overlapping but distinct effects on the brain. So it's certainly good for your brain to do things that challenge your brain. So, you know, if people enjoy doing things like crossword puzzles, Sudoku, that's great. There is a point where you need to switch it up and do something different. The point is to do things new and to not just keep doing the same thing over and over again. But either way, the benefits that you get to the brain with those types of activities are not the same as what you get from the social connections. And so you really want to not just rely on, oh, I'm going to be on my own doing my Sudoku. You know, you really want to have that time to be with people, to interact with people. And what happens is that when you're social, you are also getting cognitive stimulation, which is another part of the sort of brain healthy, like pillars of brain health, because you're talking, you're listening, you're trying to remember something we told you before. Or so you can ask about it again. Your brain is very active when you're being social. So you're not only having fun and getting support and laughing and enjoying that time, but you're using your brain in a way that is really positive. So you get more bang from your for your buck in some ways by being social, as opposed to in solitary setting, doing things like crossword puzzles. Not knocking those things at all, but you don't want to stop with that. You want to do more. I also like the fact that you talked about people who are introverted and that you talk about when you talk about social, that it could be a small network or a large network because there are so many different people and introverts, it can cost them a lot of energy to socialize. So it's like not one size fits all, but it is social connection is critical for everyone to some extent. Is that a correct re restatement of what you're saying? 
That is absolutely correct. What's important is that people are true to themselves and what it is that they want. So it's not saying everyone must do the same thing. When it comes to social connections, the research shows that what causes problems is when there's a disconnect between the social interaction someone wants and the social interaction they get. So in the book, I give the example that one of my best friends in the world is the complete opposite of me. Um, And so it was kind of funny that when the pandemic started, and this was maybe a month or two into it, and we're talking on the phone, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so miserable. I miss being around people. I want to go to work and see my colleagues. I want to be able to see my friends. I need people around me. And she said, what are you talking about? One of the best things about this pandemic is I don't have to see people. People. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, how is that possible? And somehow we're best friends despite, you know, having this very different approach to people. She's very happy and with a much smaller group of people that she sees certain times by not being around people constantly. And for me, after about two days of not being around people, I started like getting really, really uncomfortable and unhappy. <laughs> and I just, my social, I'm a social butterfly. What can I say? Yeah. And so for her, something like that, not having as many people around, it's not going to cause the same negative effects because that she's fine. She's getting what she wants. She has her close friends. She has her family and she's perfectly happy with that. For someone like myself, it can lead long-term to problems if I had continued forever, you know, being separated from people, which is why so many of us went out of our way to be creative about how to be social yeah. during those early days of the pandemic. So it's definitely about what each person wants and having the match between your desire and then what you have around you. So this is good. We have to exercise. And again, you're saying modify it based on who you are, where you are, how you feel about exercise. But movement, physical activity is really important to engage in brain health. Social connection is really important to engage in brain health. Is there anything else that we should think about? when we talk about lifestyle changes? Yeah, definitely. So I, I mentioned a little bit before about staying cognitively stimulated. So that just means using your brain in different ways, staying mentally active. So doing things that require you to learn something new or to think in a different way and to challenge yourself mentally is really good. Now that can also be something that's very fun. It can be that you go on vacation and like learn the history of that place. You know, it could be going to a museum It could be different hobbies that require you to learn something new or do something new, learn to play the piano, take up artwork or other crafting sorts of things. Those are all using your brain in different ways. So just staying mentally active is really important as well. So you kind of put those three together. It's being physically, socially, and mentally active are three of those big pillars of brain health. But we also have things like nutrition that are important, having a heart-healthy diet, It doesn't mean that you can never have some of the things that you enjoy indulging in. My thing is cheesecake and French fries. I love them. I can't help it. (laughs) But I'm not not going to have them every day. Not together, I hope. Not together. (laughs) Although that's an interesting idea. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we all have things we love indulging in. It's not about saying you can never have certain foods or that you have to always eat certain things. It's about having a balanced diet, having more of the things that are good and healthy for us, like, you know, whole grains and vegetables and lean meats and fish, fewer of the things that aren't as healthy, like high sugar and high salt products. But again, it's about balance. And in order to maintain healthy eating habits, long-term habits, it means being reasonable about having balance and not going 
a really overly strict fat diet that most people can't stick to. And that's probably not good for your brain anyway, because we need a balance of nutrients to be healthy. So that's a big part of things as well. And that's very achievable for people. It's just a matter of discipline, as as I well know, (laughs) being a sugar fiend. One area of your research that I think is really interesting, I'd like to just touch on, is in addition to brain health, you've studied depression in older adults. And why is it, is it true that depression is more common in older adults or is that not true? What have you found out? So what I found is that the answer to that is kind of complicated, um, like okay. a lot of things in science. So when it comes to major depressive disorder, which is the cl- clinical term for a certain group of features or symptoms that someone has for at least two weeks for most of the day, so a very kind of technical definition, major depression, or we might hear it called clinical depression, is actually less common in older adults, people over the age of 65 than in young people. But what we see is that symptoms of depression that are causing problems in life but don't quite meet those criteria are actually more common in older adults. So some people call this subthreshold depression. I've done a ton of research in this area where you have these, if the criteria are for five symptoms for two weeks, but the person has maybe three symptoms for two weeks, but they're still having the same types of depressive symptoms, things like a loss of interest in usual, in usually enjoyable things, sad mood, appetite changes, sleep changes, those sorts of symptoms. If you have less than the required five symptoms for two weeks, but they're still causing some distress or causing problems with daily functioning, that's what we call subthreshold depression. And that is much higher actually in older adults than in young people. So I think that's important to point out because when it comes to treatment, a lot of people end up not going to see a therapist or considering medication, et cetera. They don't think about that unless they've been diagnosed with clinical depression. So there's this question about whether or not in terms of trying to prevent someone from progressing from that subthreshold depression to major depression or clinical depression, should we have some kind of early intervention that may not be medication? I don't think medication is the answer for everything. I would argue it should be exercise, among yeah. other things that could be helpful. But there are things that we know are helpful for mood that might be able to help the many older adults who are having these type of subthreshold symptoms can help them basically stop the progression to more clinical or severe depression and to be able to sort of function better and not have the negative consequences on their brain and on their cognitive functioning that we see is oftentimes linked with depression in older adults. If you're getting smarter, let us know. Leave us a review, a rating, wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends and follow us on social. We're at Seniority Authority on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And don't forget, if you're listening to YouTube, hit the notification bell so you can subscribe. Or subscribe to our newsletter at SeniorityAuthority.org so you don't miss a thing. Dr. Dotson, do you think that this is something that's going to become categorized subthreshold depression? If one of the, our listeners was nodding their head and saying, yeah, this sounds like me, if they spoke to their doctor, would they recognize that term? 
So that's a good question. I would say it depends. I think there are many doctors who do recognize that. And there are many doctors who understand that there's some wiggle room around treatment in the sense that when someone is clearly in distress and having symptoms, that even if they're below that threshold for, you know, according to the DSM, which we use to diagnose disorders, they can they might recognize that something still needs to be done and get that treatment. There are other doctors who I think do have a more sort of strict definition and wouldn't um, give any treatment. What I recommend for people is that when it comes to something like therapy, which we know is so effective um, across the lifespan for mental health conditions, you're not going to see a therapist that's going to say, no, I'm not going to treat you because you don't meet the cutoff for clinical depression. They're going to say, you're in distress. Like you have some things that we can help with. Let's start therapy. So that's always an option. It really is more when you're working with physicians who may have a stricter definition for prescribing medication, that's where you might get the most kind of pushback. But I'm a psychologist by training. I am biased to say therapy is great anyway, because therapy is what helps you process the things that are contributing to the depression. Therapy can help with encouraging some of the healthy lifestyle behaviors, such as exercise and social connections that are not just good for the brain, but that are good for depression. And they're actually probably good for depression because they're good for the brain. They're all interconnected. So it's a great option if you feel like I'm having some symptoms. I'm not sure if it's clinical depression. You can still get that help. So if you're feeling like this is you have this underlying sadness, lack of interest, that your recommendation is go to a therapist and exercise, because, again, Immediately going to a prescription is not necessarily the most sustaining answer. And as we know, as older adults, the more prescriptions you have on board your body, the harder it is for your body to process them. Exactly. One reason why I really love exercise for depression is because of that issue with medication. As people get older, there's more likely to be, like you said, more medications on board because different medical conditions are more likely to occur as you get older. So having an option that doesn't require taking medication sometimes, I'm not saying you shouldn't take antidepressants, sometimes it really is needed. But if you have the option of trying, particularly before the symptoms get worse, to do things like exercise, and of course, therapy for coping strategies and for processing difficult situations, it can be really powerful. That's really, really important. In your research, you identify that there's a preponderance of depression in older Black adults. What are the factors that lead to that? How did you come up with that conclusion? Yeah, that is such a complicated topic. Yeah. And I give credit to the many researchers who have been doing work in this area that have sort of led to my conclusions because it is not, it, I do not take credit for, <laughs> for this conclusion at all. What we know is that basically black and brown people tend to have a higher risk for both cognitive and mood disorders as they get older. What's interesting is that some of the research shows that sort of similar to what I said about older adults, sometimes the actual prevalence or the rates of depression in black older adults, some research studies actually show similar rates of depression, but what they sh- Know is that the severity of the depressive symptoms and the impact of depression on people's lives is greater in Black older adults. And then there are other studies that do indeed show that there's an increased rate of depression. What's important to note as well is that there's a likelihood that we're getting underestimates of the rates because historically, different groups are less likely to acknowledge 
psychological symptoms, due to stigma, due to concerns about trust with the medical system or with researchers because of things that have happened historically and that unfortunately to some degree still happen. And so there's a there's a possibility that the, the numbers that we have in terms of rates are actually underestimates. But what we do know for sure is that the severity of symptoms, the impact on life tends to be greater in Black older adults compared to non-Hispanic white older adults. And it really points to a lot of factors at play that likely lead to this. And again, this is one of those topics that I could spend a whole hour on. So I'll try to do it. I know. Sorry. (laughs) I I love the question. So it's great. But some bullet points. We know in general that there are different social determinants of health that impact physical health and mental health. These are things about our environment that can affect us for the positive or negative. It's things like access to high quality uh, medical care. It's the neighborhoods that you live in and whether or not you have green space, whether or not you have access to um, healthy, high quality food, whether or not your water and your air are clean. We're learning a lot about how the air we breathe and the water we drink really impacts every aspect of health. Oh, yeah. And because physical health and mental health are so interconnected, when you have groups of people such as Black older adults who have lived through, you know, decades of so many forms of inequities and discrimination and other sorts of things, you have a sort of compounding effects of environmental exposures that can make someone more likely to develop depression because those environmental determinants have affected their body. And we know that depression is ultimately linked dysfunction in the brain that then comes forth or is shown as mood symptoms, as well as other things like cognitive impairment. On top of that, we have the experience of discrimination is a type of chronic stress. And we know from many decades of research that chronic stress takes a huge toll on the body. Anyone who has stress for long periods of time, and it can be due to any kind of environmental factor, but this includes race-related stress in the form of discrimination, a heightened vigilance for discrimination. Mm -hmm. So at the moment you're not experiencing a situation, you're looking for it, you're waiting for it, that creates this wear and tear on the body that makes people much more at risk for vascular um, conditions, so heart disease, um, all the high blood pressure, high cholesterol, stroke, diabetes, all these vascular-related medical conditions that we know affect the Black population more can be tied to this chronic stress that starts to wear down the vascular system and heart health in the body. And that leads to, that can lead to depression and other mental health symptoms. So between the chronic stress and then other environmental determinants that I kind of briefly summarized without giving full justice to it, that could likely explain why we see this discrepancy between um, the rates of depression in Black older adults compared to others. That makes a lot of sense, especially when you think about the pressure of discrimination and, you know, the vigilance of walking around every day and kind of having this fight or flight syndrome embedded in you does really create this whole nother whole base layer of stress where you don't feel safe. You're wondering what's going to happen next. So that's very understandable the way that you've explained it. Are there programs? Is there anything that's being done to address this discrepancy? Are people starting to talk about it? Yeah, so people are definitely starting to talk about it, which is really great to see after many years of this not being acknowledged maybe as much as it should have been. 
So first, I will acknowledge that there have been some people who have been doing work in this space for decades in terms of trying to understand general kind of racial disparities and in, in health outcomes. I think there's increasingly been more focus on this disparity when it comes to depression and other psychological conditions, and definitely when it comes to dementia in older adults. So I think in terms of the intersectionality of being older and, you know, a Black American, people are realizing creates these unique um, disparities and unique challenges. And that has been sort of growing over time in terms of the research. And then slowly, we're starting to see that this there's efforts to try to translate that into actual healthcare. And that includes, you know, things like one thing that I'm really excited about is seeing how different community organizations and churches are getting the word out, you know, doing a lot more events and health fairs and things like that for people in Black communities. And Black churches are a big place for that to happen, um, as well as other kind of community groups. So knowledge is power. It really is. And so one of my favorite things to do, actually, is to go to these kinds of events and talk about brain health, talk about signs of depression or things that you can do to have a healthier brain. Because these are sort of, in my mind, I think these are basic things everyone should know, but not everyone knows it. And so that educational mission, I think, has really picked up. And there are, you know, groups like the American Psychological Association who are doing a lot in that space. I was on the Committee on Aging for APA for three years, and they do a ton of work in terms of advocacy and to the point of members going to members of Congress and trying to advocate for different bills that would help for increasing access and things like that. So we have different groups that are working on that. On the research side, more and more researchers are understanding we have to have more representative research samples so that the people who are most vulnerable are being represented in the research. And one of the positives that's come out of 2020, when we not only had the pandemic, but we had this kind of reckoning of racial issues in the country, Mm -hmm. is that a lot of journals started really pushing for more studies that are looking at different racial and ethnic minorities in some of these different mental health and other conditions. And it's been a a really a tremendous increase in that. Not enough. Um, I think there was a time where there were like special issues that focused on it. And then some people kind of forgot about it. But I think there's enough of us that are saying, no, let's keep let's keep this going. This needs to be like standard practice of what we do as researchers is having representative samples. And that has been really powerful. And I think we'll start to translate more and more into practice and into policy. That's so encouraging to hear. And I just want to thank you for also having educated our organization, our audience about all of these issues, because this is part of spreading the word and making change and advocating for change. And the other thing that I think is so fascinating about you is not only do you research this and study this and study the science, but you're also doing something practical that will change things. You've launched this new business, CerebroFit, in Georgia. And so you're really taking full circle the research, the science, the therapy, and then putting it into practice. Can you tell us a little bit about CerebroFit and what the philosophy is? Yeah. So Cerebral Fit is basically the culmination of all the work I've done since graduate school. And it's really exciting to have a chance to sort of put into practice what I've been researching. So based on the research I've been doing on things that affect the brain for the positive or the negative, so negative things like depression and vascular disease, positive things like exercise, I'm trying to put that all into practice. And it came out of my clinical work where I would 
see someone for an evaluation. I might diagnose them with dementia, or I might say, right now you're doing pretty well, but you want to start thinking about having a healthy brain and reducing your risk in the future. And my recommendations would include things like, oh, you should exercise, you should eat well, some depressive symptoms, so get maybe go to therapy, et cetera, et cetera, which required them to go to three or four different providers to get those services. And I started thinking, you know, this must be really difficult for my clients because they're being sent all over the place, but these things are important. And I thought, I wish there were a place I could send them, like one stop for brain health. And then I decided you know what? I'm going to create a one-stop for brain health. That's and- awesome. <laughs> Thank you. So that's what Cerebral Fit is. It is a one-stop shop for brain health. Within the same company, we have this integrated or holistic approach to brain health where someone can come in and get a neuropsychological evaluation or also brief screener if they're not having any major concerns to see where are they cognitively. And then based on the things they're already doing and things they need to fill in in terms of healthy lifestyle behaviors, we make a brain health plan. And so within the same group, when an integrated way, a person can get personal training or take small group exercise classes. They can see a nutritionist. They can see a therapist. If they have any kind of mental health concerns, we have a health coach. We're bringing on a sleep specialist. They can just get all these different aspects of brain health in one integrated manner. That's not requiring them to go and find providers all over the place. And that for me is kind of a dream come true to finally get to actualize in a community setting, the kinds of things I've been researching for years. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a dream come true. It really does. Because all of these work together and you're making it easier for the consumer to get a kind of a holistic approach that is based primarily in lifestyle changes. And in Western medicine, we're so attuned to go to the doctor, get a prescription, you take that prescription, and then something else happens, you get that another prescription. And then suddenly the prescriptions are interacting with each other. And as older adults, there's a lot of drug interactions. And But to peel it back and say, what can we do in our lives to change that and mm-hmm. have all these guides is fabulous. Where is, I'm so excited about this. Where is this in Georgia? Thank you. So we're um, based in Atlanta, but we actually offer services in person and online, which is really exciting to be able to do that. was also a practical decision because we launched right before the pandemic. So Mm. another sort of positive that came from the pandemic for us is from beginning, figuring out how we can offer at least most of our services online. So we're based in Atlanta um, in terms of our in-person services. But we can offer the neuropsychological assessments and the therapy anywhere in Georgia because myself and the therapist working with me are licensed in Georgia. I actually am planning on expanding that and hopefully there'll be an opportunity in the future that our licenses will be recognized across states. We had that during the pandemic and then that got changed. So one day it'll be um, national on that part. But everything else that we do can be offered online to anyone anywhere in the country. And I also have had situations where someone, let's say from California, finds out about us and wants to have the neuropsych assessment, but then also do our other services. In a lot of different states, I have trusted colleagues who I refer them to for the neuropsych part, but then we do everything else in-house virtually. So there's lots of options and flexibility wherever someone lives that we that you can work with us. Don't think that if you're not in Georgia and that we're not an option because 
most of what we do can be done in a virtual manner. And I'm happy to, you know, like I said, make referrals to people in the area for neuropsychology if that's something that we're not able to do for you. That is wonderful. And for all of the listeners, we will have a link to CerebroFit as well as Dr. Dotson's book, Keep Your Wits About You, in the show notes. What are the one or two things as we start ending our conversation that you would recommend all of our listeners either stop or start doing tomorrow, next week, to improve their brain health? If they listen to nothing else, what are the, give us one or two things to walk away with to do? Definitely. So it won't be surprising that number one, I'm going to say is move. So move, move, move your body, (laughs) get up and move, try to reduce the amount of time that you're sedentary, meaning that you're sitting and like doing nothing. It's not just getting a half hour workout every day and then sitting around the rest of the day. It's trying to move throughout the day. Even if you're working or doing things that require you to sit for a while, intentionally take five, 10 minute breaks and start small. You can say, I only have 10 or 15 minutes in my day to sit in. That's fine. That's great. Do that. And then that starts to build the uh, desire and the benefits to keep exercising. And so start doing that. So move. And then the last one, I would say kind of broadly, live and live fully. If you live fully, then you are going to be doing things that keep your mind going. You're going to be around people. You can enjoy your food and eat your food, but have make healthy choices. So part of having a healthy brain is just living fully. And I like saying it that way because then it doesn't sound so scary. It's like, just live, indulge in life and in people and in experiences. And your brain benefits from actually living a full life. That sounds like wonderful advice that I think everyone could take and uh, can start doing right now, wherever you are listening to the podcast. Move and live fully. We already know that you are a very smart gerontologist who is helping NASA, who is helping the regular people, who knows the brain well, but let's get to know you a little bit better. This is our Fast Five. You talk about healthy things, but what is your guilty pleasure? You alluded to it earlier. What's your guilty pleasure? (laughs) Definitely when it comes to food, the guilty pleasures are cheesecake and french fries to the point where if I don't even know someone that well and they have fries and they're at my table, I'll be like, can I have some of those fries? (laughs) (laughs) I can't see them and not have them. It's just, it's a big weakness. Probably the fries even more than the cheesecake. I just, it's hard to resist. Okay. Okay. And of all the healthy practices you do, what's your favorite? Exercise. Okay. (laughs) That was easy. But I actually, so until the pandemic. Do you have a favorite exercise? Probably kickboxing. Um, and kickboxing and yoga, which are two opposite things, but they're both marvelous until the pandemic. I taught group fitness classes and I stopped when the pandemic started and haven't gone back to it, but I plan on doing that because I love that way of getting people to be healthy by leading the class and the classes that I taught, I started with Zumba and with dance base, which I also loved, but you know, as I'm getting older, my knees don't like it so much. And then I also taught classes through Les Mills International, a fitness company that's um, one called Body Combat, which is a sort of kickboxing, mixed martial arts inspired sort of uh, workout, um, really intense, really wonderful. And then I taught body balance or body flow which is more yoga-based with a little bit of um, Pilates built into it. Those are my favorite. I work out six days a week. I love it. It's not a chore. My trainer gave me a three-mile run today, which I didn't want to do because I was like, I'd rather do something like dancing. But I listened because 
the trainer for my company is my own personal trainer. He's wonderful, but does kick my butt. So <laughs> yes, I did that actually right before I got dressed for this interview. So I'm oh. still getting the, there's like a two hour window or so of like all this um, adrenaline flow and chemicals that change in your brain to kind of boost your mood and attention. And so I'm still benefiting from that after my, my three mile run this morning. That's fabulous. And you know what I have to say? I'm a, a huge fan of fitness classes, I always say it's the only area of my life where I want somebody to tell me what to do because <laughs> I think you, it's really good to, you get the benefit of the camaraderie in the class and you have yep. somebody who is setting the bar just a little bit higher than you can achieve so that you feel like you accomplished something, but there's more to go. So exactly. I, I'm a big class fan. Yes. Um, what's guaranteed to make you laugh hearing other people laugh <laughs> I, I, I it's contagious to me laughter really is contagious especially little kids or babies I, I cannot possibly hear that without chuckling at least myself because it's I don't even know what they're laughing at it just makes me laugh so that's yeah. probably the best way to get me to laugh it's very genuine too tell us a little bit about the last book you loved so I think, well, the last book I read, and I, I keep saying I'm going to start a new book and I haven't, but the last book I read a few months ago was My Remarkable Journey from Katherine Johnson. So she is the African-American NASA scientist who was depicted in Hidden Figures. Oh, and, yes. That yes. was so great. Okay. Yes. So her autobiography is just amazing and inspiring, as you might imagine. For me, being a Black female scientist at NASA as well, I have a picture of her in my office. My husband found out they had a special edition Barbie of her and got that for me. And oh. she is, she's kind of my my idol right now. So I, I really, really enjoyed reading her biography or autobiography. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. I will look that up because I have not read that, but I love the movie and loved her story. And yeah. She's That's such it. an inspiration. And she lived to be, I believe, 101. She just passed a year or two ago. So she just had, I actually mentioned her in my book in terms of people who have longevity and what they have in common is that they stay active and keep their mind going, which she always did. She was a, a brilliant woman and just has a really, really fascinating story. So I recommend that for everybody. Yeah, I think there was a little clip of her at the end of the movie. Yes. Of her. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, last thing. If you want to escape, what's your favorite escape? Lately, in the last few years, it has been going somewhere on the beach with my husband. I always liked the beach, but I think the pandemic made me like it more because it was one of the yeah. first things I felt comfortable doing because you're outside and you're not closed in. And now I just have that. I have that bug. I'm in the beach. Take me there. Let me relax and be outside and hear the waves. And that is the best escape for me. Yeah, it sounds good right now. <laughs> right now, it's yes. a little bit cold in Atlanta, so um, yeah. that sounds yeah. really good to me. I'm waiting for for some summer weather. Well, we're lucky here in Exeter, New Hampshire. We're only 15 minutes from the beach. It is uh, New Hampshire, so it is cold, but you can at least get outside and smell the waves and smell the air, and just yeah. it's a wonderful respite. That does sound wonderful. Well, we have uncovered a lot. We have talked about so much and I really cannot thank you enough for sharing your wisdom with the audience. Please uh, go to our show notes. You'll have the links to CerebroFit, the book I would highly recommend 
science-based, but very accessible and really good recommendations for how to start building a brain-healthy practice. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope everyone finds the information useful. Yeah. That's our show for today. If it helped you think differently, please help us. Go to Seniority Authority page on your podcasting app and fill out the plus, heart, favorite, or subscribe buttons so you don't miss out. And tell your friends so we can spread the word. Until then, enjoy the chance to get smarter about growing older. That's our show for today. If you liked it, please tell your friends so we can reach more minds and keep the conversation going. Or follow us on social at Seniority Authority. I'm Kathleen Toomey. Until next time, enjoy your chance to get smarter about growing older.